is. And uh, I want to thank uh, the worship team this morning and, and, and David uh, for leading us, you know, uh, in the presence of God, really, uh, in the quietness of this last uh, few minutes. Uh, so we're concluding this series on the life of Joseph. Uh, and then tonight, of course, if you're able to come out, uh, we have the second, uh, actually the third uh, of our evening teaching series on the Beatitudes. Uh, we're going to focus on what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But we've been journeying with Joseph in this series uh, since way back early in October. I think it was the 6th of October we began this series. And so it's time, I think, that we laid him to rest. What do you think? Yeah? Um, and, uh, and we'll do that this morning as we move quickly through the remaining chapters of his life. Uh, and as we do that, it will also take us actually to the end of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, the first 11 chapters, as you know, concerns the four great events of creation, sin and the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. And then starting in chapter 12, Joseph is one of the, the big four of the Hebrew patriarchs in the book of Genesis. There's, first of all, his great-grandfather, Abraham, and then his grandfather, Isaac, and then his father, Jacob, until we come to Joseph's story, uh, one of promise and of the providence of God that begins, and, and we looked at it way back when in chapter 37. Now, as a short of, sort of a, a short recap, we've been studying how nearly 4,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, this 17-year-old teenager was betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery in a foreign land, eventually thrown into prison, but by God's grace and by God's providence, now age 30, um, Joseph was not only released from prison, but he became eventually the, the prime minister of Egypt. And then when a long famine uh, came along, which he had uh, personally prophesied uh, based on Pharaoh's dream, uh, it actually occurred, and Joseph's brothers, because it extended into Canaan, uh, they came into Egypt looking for food. And uh, Joseph recognized them, but they didn't at first recognize him. Uh, and after he was eventually satisfied that, that they were not the same cruel men who had once betrayed him and they had repented of their sin, he revealed himself to them and he forgave them. Uh, which by then was more than 22 years after that they had robbed him of his boyhood, of his family, of his country and for all they had known, even of his life. And, and Joseph's life, as we've been seeing, demonstrates the invisible hand or the providence of God, And in the 50 chapters of Genesis, as I say, with all its twists and turns, uh, more than a quarter of the book of Genesis is reserved for the story of Joseph. It's more space than is devoted to Abraham's life, even the father of the faith. And as we've looked through the window of Joseph's life in these weeks, we've clearly seen that even if he considered that his future was unknown, his future was unscripted, the providence of God was at work in him and through him all the time. And so we're just going to read a few verses in chapter 45, if you want to turn to Genesis 45, and then uh, I'll just mention some other verses towards uh, the remaining chapters. So chapter 45 of Genesis, beginning at the first verse. Joseph, this is when his brothers had come to him and all that we had looked at previously, could no longer control himself before his attendants. He cried out, have everyone else leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for all the next five years they will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then go down to verse 13. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. And then verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt, that is the brothers, and they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is alive. In fact, he's ruler of all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw that the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. And we end the reading of God's word just there. You know, among other things, the life of Joseph explains to us uh, how the children of Israel ended up for 400 years in Egypt. You know, we all know about them being in slaves in Egypt and then eventually being released and on and the journey, you know, the, the wandering for 40 years to get to the promised land. But how did they get to Egypt in the first place? Well, this is how they got to Egypt. Um, and uh, it tells us the story of how they grew from, from one man, just Jacob and, and his sons, to over a million people over those years. And it's interesting that Genesis commences in chapter 1, the very first chapter of Genesis, chapter 1, first verse it says, in the beginning, and then it concludes, as we'll see in chapter 50, the last chapter, the last verse, 26, it concludes with a coffin in Egypt. That's interesting, isn't it? It reminds us that life has a beginning, but it also has an ending. And yet the wonderful truth is that from our first newborn cry to our final breath and everything that life brings us in between, we can trust that the grace of God will always be available. In fact, that's what that song was saying, from creation to the cross, and then from the cross to eternity, your grace finds me. God's in the business of extending his redeeming and his sustaining grace to to save and to transform people all the time. But we need to realize that this transformation is usually not an overnight event. It doesn't happen just overnight. You know, it it takes a while. Uh, Often the kind of thing that we expect, we want God to do a miracle now. We want him to transform us now. uh, And we look for it now, but it, it happens over time. I know that some of you, particularly ladies, but maybe some men as well, you know, you, you try that uh, anti-wrinkle cream. Some of you have got it in your, in your, in your cupboards, and that oil of delay <laughs> that's supposed to help you lose your wrinkles and look younger. Uh, and then, you know, you, you slap it on, and you put it on heavy, you know, with a trowel or whatever it takes. And then you look in the mirror the next morning expecting to see a difference. But what do you see when you look in the mirror? Well... <laughs> It never works like that, does it? It, it, it takes time if, if it's going to happen 
at all. Well, in the same way, in the spiritual realm, the transformation of men and women not only, it's not only the work of a moment, it's not usually something that happens suddenly in a crisis or in a moment of complete surrender. It's the work of a lifetime. It takes place over the long term as the Spirit of God gently, sometimes sharps us and molds us from within, soothing out the wrinkles of sin in our hearts and loosening up the grip of the world and its values and forming us into something in God's eyes that is absolutely beautiful. And in reality, that's what's been going on behind the scenes uh, in these closing chapters of Joseph's life story. It's the Spirit of God working in the brothers' hearts that makes them willing to put themselves really in harm's way in order to stand by their youngest brother, Benjamin. It's the Spirit of God working in Judah in particular who was a mess at one time that makes him offer himself as a substitute and a slave in his brother's place, in contrast to what had happened 22 years earlier when he was the one that wanted to get rid of Joseph in particular. And it's the Spirit of God working in Joseph even that gives him the grace when eventually uh, he meets his brothers again after all those years and, and, and reveals himself to them. He forgives his brothers unconditionally after all that they had done uh, to him. So at the outset, there's a great lesson for all of us in that the Bible clearly teaches that, uh, that at the heart of the universe, there is a creator who, who's both just and, and purposeful, who has also established links between actions and consequences. And this is what's behind the, the assertion of Asap, a God-inspired writer in some of the Psalms. He wrote Psalm 73 in verse 1, and he says, Truly God is good. To those who are pure in heart. But then if you read that psalm. Uh, a question arises for Asap. When real life as he has experienced it. Doesn't work out the way that he thought it should. Because in the very next verse of that psalm. He's confessing that he's really struggling. Over accepting this truth. He says in verse 2. But as for me. Yes God's good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. In other words, he's saying, judging from appearances, God doesn't seem to enforce his justice evenly. And frankly, it's causing me to lose my spiritual balance. He goes on to describe the seemingly injustices of life and how it is that the wicked seem to be doing okay when, when the righteous often seem to have to struggle. In essence, he's saying, I've discovered how life really seems to work, or at least I think so. Those who try to stay humble and do good, often they have to live through, through tough times, through mediocre times. But those who live by uh, selfishness and power and greed and ungodliness often seem to get away with it and have a great time. What's the matter with that? It sounds a bit like he lives in our day, isn't it? And even in our study of, of Joseph's life, there are plenty of reasons that he could have, he could have agreed with, with Asaph. He was sold like cattle to his, uh, by his own brothers to passing slave merchants. He was falsely accused of rape by a conniving, immoral woman. He, he was imprisoned, although he was innocent. He was forgotten after he had helped others out. And all his young adult years were littered with circumstances that seemed to defy the biblical order that God blesses the faithful and he judges the wicked. Joseph would have had uh, every reason to, to question uh, that truth. But it is true, nevertheless. How easy it would have been for Joseph to become angry. 
to allow it to, uh, to turn uh, him to bitterness, to let temptation lead to immorality, to let fear foster despair, to let suffering turn to self-pity. Not to mention that Joseph now had ample ammunition and power with which to take a spectacular revenge if he wanted against his cruel brothers when they came to him. But you know, through it all, he kept his integrity intact. He exhibited a gentle, forgiving spirit. And he allowed God to work in him and through him. It was as if he was living by, by a different sort of script. One that empowers a person to glorify God no matter what. And while this morning's message is, is for us all, it's especially for those of you who, who have been or those of you who may feel abandoned or betrayed or wronged or abused or forgotten, I want us to hear from Joseph himself as he interprets the events of his life and as he models living by a different script. I wonder this morning, is there someone here that you're struggling to forgive? Every mention of their name cause you to tense up with anger. Maybe you've even prayed about it, but you've had little relief. Well, can I suggest to you that you try thinking of their words and their actions towards you that you feel may have offended you as part, listen, as part of God's providence in your life. And you see God's hand even in those circumstances and anticipate the good that God will eventually bring from it. You see, life is not always fair, but God is always good. So when circumstances uh, out of our control come our way, when things happen to us that we, we didn't expect or didn't want, God is still sovereign. And so let this morning be a day for you perhaps of, of relief and release and a time when you stop carrying your hurts or carrying your hang-ups and your wounds uh, and let he who was wounded for you take them and bring healing into your life. In Genesis 45 that we just read from, one of the greatest moments in the entire Old Testament is about to unfold. And we've come to the climactic point of this story we've been following all these weeks. As Joseph reveals who he is and his brothers start to take in that reality. And what happens next unfolds two of the deepest and most important truths that we can learn about life. Two truths that need to become crucial Christian convictions in our hearts. I hope as God's people this morning you know that you're supposed to have convictions that's not a criminal thing. You're not supposed to have criminal convictions, for sure. But, you know, if there was enough evidence, uh, you know, to charge you with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence? You're supposed to have convictions that you stand up with and stand up for. And, uh, you know, these true truths that I'm going to mention, they can equip us, really, as, as they did for Joseph, to, to march to a different drumbeat and to live life according to a different script. So as Joseph stands before his brothers, he reveals the first conviction that we need to honour God when sometimes everything goes south in our lives. And it's simply this. God will eventually bring about full disclosure and his justice will eventually be fully served. 
Now, those of you this morning here who may sense or feel or know that you've been wounded in some way in the past or you've been wronged in one way or another, you can be assured that God's character demands that justice will be fully served. The Lord of the universe will see to it that a full disclosure of all the wrongs that you've endured will occur and a just repayment for those wrongs will be exacted. No one ever gets away with anything. And as we've previously seen, uh, we can be sure that our sins and the sins of others against us will be found out. Hebrews 4 and 13 puts it like this. There, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. And if we've blatantly cheated, slandered, offended someone, or we've been blatantly cheated against and slandered against or offended by someone, we can rest on this. God will set things right eventually. He will do it exactly at the right time and in the fullest possible way to sort things out. You know, our world doesn't need more Clint Eastwoods taking justice and revenge into their own hands because they don't think that God's doing a good enough job. Instead, our world needs to see Christians who will rest in the promises of God. And Joseph had a conviction that God would, and <coughs> excuse me, God could handle the outcome of all that was happening to him. And so it freed him from his own feelings and his own vengeance, if you like. And then the second truth that became a conviction for him in his heart was perhaps the, the single most distinguishing thing about Joseph's attitude through all these experiences. He saw the goodness of God behind everything. Imagine that. Looking again at Joseph's testimony in verses 5 and 9, or 5 through 9, uh, we note how many times he, he refers in chapter 45 in these verses, uh, he mentions God. He mentions God five times in six verses. And so his brothers don't miss the point. Because the truth is that Joseph had consistently lived his life relating everything that happened to him back to God. Chapter 39, verse 9, when he was tempted to commit adultery with the wife of Potiphar, he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In chapter 40 and verse 8, when he was falsely imprisoned and was told of dreams that Pharaoh's officials were unable to interpret, he responded, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And when he stood before Pharaoh, he said the same thing in chapter 41, verse 16. I can't do this, interpret your dreams, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And later he reflected in chapter 41, verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And Joseph had two sons, if you remember me mentioning that, with his Egyptian wife, one of whom he named Manasseh, saying in chapter 41, verse 51, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the other he named Ephraim because he said, chapter 41, verse 52, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And then there's the absolute culmination of how he lived in the last chapter in verse 20. You know it well, where Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so Joseph was just full of uh, the knowledge and, and, and the truth, the conviction that God was good and God would bring good out of any situation. But his, his words point to an enormous irony because it was the very thing used against him, their betrayal, 
that actually resulted in him being able to save those who had betrayed him. And we see the, the central truth in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, he said to them, but God. And those are either the words of a madman or, or a man of tremendous trust and faith in a sovereign God. Joseph looked past uh, secondary causes to God himself. He saw God's hand in it all. In it all. Governing, limiting, tailoring every circumstance to bring about the best possible outcome for the most people for the longest possible time. His vision of God was so great that it, it dwarfed the, the, the sin of his brothers. Way back when, Donald Barnhouse, a wise preacher of a past generation, made these observations, observations from Joseph's example. He said, to see God in all things, both good and evil, enables us to forgive easily those who injure us. It does not incline us to condone their fault as if they were unconscious instruments, for they act as freely as if God had no part at all, but we can pity, forgive, and pray for them, for they are the unwitting benefactors of our souls. What a, what a thought, what a truth to take for ourselves, that those who, who, who come against us, those who abuse us, those who do all sorts of things towards us, uh, they, according to Barnhouse, are the unwitting benefactors to our souls. So when we're going through the ordeal of being maybe unfairly attacked or we've been lied to or we've been gossiped about, when our reputation has been publicly slandered or smeared, when our friends betray us, when a spouse even abandons us, it may appear impossible that such things could accomplish any good. But they do. The key word is the word appear. You see, we see far less than God sees. But it still begs the question, how does God bring about good from evil? There's an old word that's used to explain how God does just that. It's, it's, it's the word interpose. It's not used very much today. Meaning that God interposes himself in every situation so that he's able to bring about good out of the worst that happens it's a kind of a chess uh, phrase if you know chess you know you can see in the first slide there to, to your right uh, the, 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 the queen is it? the king is in check the king's in check and in the second slide the bishop interposes between the two to make sure that that doesn't happen uh, to interpose means to place or to insert between one thing and another. And when used in a spiritual sense concerning God, it means God actively involves himself even in the worst moments of our lives. You know, when I consider the sin and the, and the heartache that's in the world, it's, it's hard to grasp what it means for God to interpose himself into those situations. But no one on this side of the keyhole of life can say how it works but we can rest assured that God in his wisdom and his all-knowingness knows exactly what he's doing. And I find great comfort uh, to know that. In a world marked by so much tragedy and death and destruction, God isn't a passive observer. He's actually and always working behind the scenes to bring about the ends that are for our good and for his glory. And even though we may not fully see it at the time, there is perfect harmony between, listen, between God's predestination and the free will moral choices of sinful men. 
And that's best illustrated, isn't it, in the life and death of Jesus, where God used the sinful actions of sinful people to crucify the Son of God, but it was to bring about the salvation of the world. And Jesus willingly attained uh, that, if you like, endured that, experienced that. The truth behind this, truth behind Genesis 45, and indeed from study of how Joseph lived his life, it needs to be tattooed spiritually, if you like, on our souls. We desperately need an infusion of good theology. And don't be afraid of that word theology. It simply means understanding God and his word. So that when trouble comes our way, and listen, it, it comes to us all, sooner or later. You know, we're either coming out of trouble, or we're in trouble, or we're going to go into trouble in the coming days. But when that happens and we don't buckle under the pressure and watch our faith get weak and, and suddenly disappear in the midst of the hardships of life. So often we focus on the immediate causes and we end up in despair and anger and bitterness and all the rest of it. It's very easy to dwell on the people that have hurt us deeply. Could be parents or could be children. Friends that we thought we could trust. Church members maybe who have let us down. People at work who maybe have stabbed us in the back. But as long as we stay focused exclusively on the people who hurt us, we're doomed to live in the swamp of bitterness. It's far better to understand that those who offend us, who are often our closest friends, are actually instruments in God's hands, unwitting benefactors to our souls. They are God's rod sometimes, intended to correct sometimes our own attitudes or behaviours. And to shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And more than anything else, this was the secret of Joseph's life. He saw God everywhere and he saw God in everything. He could sing if he knew that course. He is my everything. He is my all. And he had such a profound sense of God's presence that he understood that every event in his life must somehow be ascribed to the hand of God working behind the scenes. And that's why he could say to his brothers, it was not you, but it was God that sent me to Egypt. And what Joseph means is more than simply saying, well, God was there when all the bad things happened. That's true, of course, but it doesn't scratch the surface of the full sense of what he said and what he meant. Because what Joseph means to say is God was in charge of the whole, the whole process. It's not as if the brothers sold him into slavery and then somehow God intervened to bring about a good result. Joseph means that everything that happened to him, the good, the bad, and the ugly, was all part of God's ultimate plan for his life. It's hard to believe that we've come to the end of our series on Joseph's life, but we have, and I trust it's been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. Chronologically, Joseph's first 17 years were spent as a young man in Canaan, helping his father and his brothers with the herding of sheep. The next 13 years were spent as a slave and a prisoner in Egypt. The next 80 years were spent as a ruler in Egypt. And by our standards, 110 years is a very long life. <coughs> but his father Jacob lived until he was 147. And, and, and even his great-grandfather Isaac lived until he was 180. How would you like that to be the norm these days? I'm not sure if I would want that. But anyway, that's the way it was. And so as we end this series, 
We actually come to the final days of Jacob and Joseph's life. And, and in, in all, uh, we have three deathbed scenes uh, for Jacob. In the first, in Genesis 47, you can read it for yourself, Jacob eventually meets with his favorite son, Joseph, and extracts from him a promise that, that he, Jacob, will not be buried in Egypt, but will have his body taken back to Canaan to be, to be buried there. And then in the second deathbed scene in Genesis 48, it was sort of like Jacob was dying, and then he revived again. Uh, and then he was dying, but he revived again. In cha chapter 48, he meets with Joseph and Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he blesses them as, uh, you know, as this particular branch of the family. And finally, his death actually draws near in the third deathbed scene in chapter 49. The old patriarch calls all of his sons to him and he pronounces a blessing, which is at the same time a prophecy of the future history of those tribes which were to descend from them. And we read then in chapter 49 and in verse, uh, verse 33, when Jacob had finished giving his instruction to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. I like that expression. When a saint of God dies, they've been gathered to their people. Isn't that a nice, nice expression? And uh, we read then chapter 50. It says, Joseph threw himself upon his father, wept over him, kissed him. And Joseph uh, directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed him, took 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned with him 70 days. And when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, I found favor in the eyes uh, of your eyes. Speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him my father made me swear an oath. Uh, and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Let me go and bury my father, and I will return. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, uh, as he made you swear to do. And so that's exactly what Joseph did. And verse 12 of chapter 50 says, So Joseph's sons did as he commanded them, and they carried him, that is Jacob, to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave in the field of Malphia, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Joseph then reassures his brothers, as we mentioned earlier, uh, with this beautiful truth in, in verse 20. You know, don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, I don't know if you have your Bible open there, but there's a gap in the Bible uh, in, in chapter 50 between the end of verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. I don't know what version you have. I'm looking at the NIV. It measures about a quarter of an inch in the, in the actual literal record here. But chronologically, it's actually half a century gap between the word them at the end of verse 21 and then Joseph at the beginning of verse 22. The Bible says nothing about those five decades. They're silent years for us, but there can be no doubt that during that half century, God quietly and consistently continued to bless Joseph because in his last recorded conversation, Joseph is still speaking, as he always did, of his loving and faithful God. And you know, one of the marks of true Christianity 
is that whenever we come to the end of our life, we should still be holding on by faith to what we have always believed. And I hope you know that there's an art to dying well. And the Puritans spoke of a, 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 a certain dying grace, which is the special help God gives to his people as they prepare to cross the final river. And I suppose all of us are planning here to, to live a long time. But these days you can never be sure. You know, a sudden heart attack, an unexpected tumour, a drunk driver. Who knows what may happen next? Ecclesiastes 9 and 12 says, Man does not know his time. But 50 years have passed since Joseph said to his brothers, You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And that half century is covered by just one sentence. Verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. Joseph's final words are actually recorded in two places in scripture. Here and in Hebrews eleven twenty-two, it says, By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now it's unusual, I think, that Hebrews highlights this moment out of all that Joseph had experienced. It could have, it, they could have recorded by faith, Joseph, when he was betrayed, didn't become bitter. By faith, Joseph, when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, didn't yield to temptation. By faith, Joseph, when he was forgotten in prison, he didn't turn away from God. By faith, Joseph, when he met his brothers, he didn't seek revenge. They could have said that. But they didn't. When we think of Joseph, these are the things we remember. But God saw his faith shining brightest in his final moments. He rose to the highest pinnacle of faith just before he died and he knew God would yet keep his promises that he had made to his great-grandfather Abraham way back when. And though he was old and dying, Joseph saw past Egypt into the distant future because he knew that God would one day keep his promise and deliver his people from Egypt and give them a homeland of their own. There was no earthly reason to expect that, of course. To all appearances, it seemed like the Jews would stay in Egypt forever and they would for many generations to come. And for a time, Egypt grew comfortable to them and they grew wealthy in Egypt. But Joseph looked into the distant future and he said, this is not the end of the story. One day there's going to be a glorious unfolding of the purposes and the promises of God. How could Joseph be sure about such a future? Well, first he knew that God had promised his great-grandfather Abraham. And secondly, his own life proved that God keeps his promises. He knew that Israel didn't belong in Egypt. And he didn't want his bones staying in Egypt when the Jews would eventually leave Canaan. On the outside, yes, maybe he was, he, he was like an Egyptian, but on the inside he was still a child of God. He was an Israelite. And despite the fact that he spent almost a century, actually 93 years in Egypt, he never forgot who he was or where he came from. And so Joseph really is saying, I may be dying, but I believe that one day God will keep his promises. I want to be there when it happens. So don't leave me back in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. And the Bible does record later in Exodus chapter 13 that Moses took Joseph's bones with him when the Jews left Egypt. And years later, Joshua chapter 24 records that Joshua buried them at Shechem and there his bones rest in the dust 
uh, of the earth to this very day. So what does that all mean for us today? Well, our God is the God of generations to come. And the greatest thing that you and I can do is to pass our faith to our children and to our grandchildren who are coming in from Sunday school right now. The Christian faith is not a sprint. It's not really a marathon. It's a relay race. And you and I are members of a team that stretches across the generations to this present moment in time. And on and on the line goes, stretching back even 2,000 years and more. And we must make sure that we pass our faith along to our children and grandchildren. The baton of faith must be passed to the next generation. And as the years uh, quickly pass, I understand as I get older more and more that passing along the faith is the work of a lifetime. It's never finished, no matter how old I get. And it occurs to me that my number one job at this point is to make sure that I finish well. Our two kids... I like to call them are grown up. But I owe it to them and to our two grandchildren to leave them an example of what it means to finish well. And Joseph finished well and I pray that you and I can do the same when our time comes in the will of God. And I'm, I'm so thankful, I'm so glad that God's faithfulness that we've been singing about transcends the generations. I'm 68 years old. Heading for 70 75, maybe 80, or even 90 years if God blesses me with a long life. But I won't live forever, that I do know. And as the years roll by, I find myself realizing how much of my life is wrapped up in, in, our, in our kids. Yesterday they were toddlers and, and, and then teenagers, and today they're adults, and there's, there's grandchildren, and another generation emerges. What about their children? What about their children's children? Will God still be there for them? The answer is yes, because we serve a transgenerational God. And that means I don't have to stay alive to ensure that our kids and grandkids will be all right. God will see to that. And after I'm gone, and even after all my prayers may not have been answered, I can trust God to take care of my children and my grandchildren. I might, as I said, live till I'm 70 or 80. I may pray for things that might never come to pass in my lifetime. I may trust God for things that, that don't happen during my life. I may struggle against great difficulties. The, the way may be hard and the road may be steep and at times lonely. I may not be given to see everything that I would like to see in life, but it's given to me to live faithfully day after day after day. And the same for you. And our part is to live for God and to pass our faith along to our children and grandchildren if we have them. And, and, and Psalm 100 and, uh, 100 and verse 5 is a precious promise to every parent and grandparent here this morning. His faithfulness continues through all generations. You see, generations come and go, but God remains forever. And so I want to end this series where Joseph's journey ended with the great certainty that death and Brian mentioned it in a reading during our time around the table. Death can't dent the promises of God, can't separate us from God. But that being said and that being true, it's also true that not every story has a happy ending, does it? Sometimes there's no reconciliation. Sometimes abuse or abandonment or hurt continues. And yet if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we have all the more reason to forgive those who, who hurt us deeply. 
And that's not to say that we should forget or we can forget what they've done. We can't really forget because the memories are with us forever. But we can forgive even when we can't forget. And to forgive means to choose not to remember. And it means to clear the record so that we no longer cling to the hurts of the past. And that's, the, that's only possible when we come to see that even our enemies, those who come against us, are agents of God, sent or allowed by God for reasons that we may never fully understand. You know, life is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And we're like children trying to put it together when we don't have the box or the picture on the cover. And so we're left trying to fit our little handful of pieces together and trying to figure out the big picture at the same time. And no wonder we struggle at times to figure out what life's all about. And as time passes, we pick up more pieces and things that once troubled us now seem to fit into place. And eventually we gain a new appreciation for God and his wisdom because nothing's ever wasted. Everything, every circumstance fits into our life somewhere. How can we live like this in a world where tragedy is never far away? The answer is relatively simple. Though it's not easy to put into practice, we live this way by faith. By faith. We choose to believe that God is at work in everything that happens to us. We choose to believe that even when we see nothing that makes sense to us, we still have faith in God. And though it may not seem so in our present difficulties, those circumstances are simply instruments to be used for our future joy. And one day things will make more sense than they do now. But for now, for now, in the midst of it all, we're to trust that God knows best. Trials dark on every hand. and We cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But he'll guide us with his eye. And we will follow till we die. For we'll understand it better by and by. Amen. Regarding passing on the faith... Consider this final critical question. What if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery in Egypt? What if he'd grown up with horizontally limited, doubting, pessimistic Jacob? Would Joseph have ever matured into the man of God that he became if he'd been under Jacob's continual influence? You know, I, I don't think so. Joseph was spiritually better off as a slave than he was as a son. And so, let me ask you an honest question this morning. Search your own heart. Would your children, your grandchildren, be better off spiritually with you or without you, your influence? Maybe you're here this morning and your children are grown up and maybe somehow you think you've messed up passing along the faith to them. Maybe they've never become Christians themselves. Or if they did once profess Christ as their saviour, they're wandered away and they're prodigal sons and daughters. Listen, it's not too late. It's never too late. The final chapter hasn't been written yet. And by the redeeming grace of God, you can still seek to be a godly influence to them as adults as well as on your grandchildren. So what have we learned through Joseph's life all these weeks? Just want to sum it up in four, in four things take away from Joseph's life so that we can live well, so that we can die well. First of all, trust God, not circumstances. Any lesson we must learn from the life of Joseph is this. 
Some of his circumstances were unfair and tragic, but Joseph never wallowed in his circumstances. Trust in God, not in circumstances. And secondly, keep short accounts with God and people. Bitterness will shorten your life, guaranteed. It will shorten your life. But Joseph teaches us about forgiveness. Thirdly, leave no unfinished business. Do you have family members or friends you haven't forgiven? And you have, you have unfinished business and you're not ready to die well. You have unconfessed sin in your life. If you have, then you've got unfinished business to do with God and you're not yet ready to die well. No unfinished business. And lastly, be ready for your journey to the promised land. Amen. Jacob and Joseph were ready for the trip. One immediately, the other long delayed. We have no idea whether our trip will be soon or will be delayed into the future. But I can tell you that your readiness has nothing to do with the state of your body and all that wrinkle cream and everything else you like to delay things with. But it has everything to do with your crucial Christian convictions. And as a result, the state of your immortal soul. Is it well with your soul? It is this morning. You've been given every opportunity already at the table. But even now, as the worship team comes back and we sing our closing song, we still have an opportunity this morning to put things right. Put things right in your soul with God. Let's, let's bow in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that you have allowed us